Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Iggy Pop is one of the craziest rock and roll frontmen to ever grace the stage. As the lead singer of the Stooges, Iggy was known for bending and contorting his sometimes bloodied body while feverishly pacing the stage like a wild animal. His 50-year career has been as tumultuous as his performance style. After starting the Stooges in Michigan in 67, the band released three albums, including Funhouse and Raw Power. The band eventually disbanded in the mid-70s, and Iggy went solo, recording a series of albums, some of which were instant classics, like the two recorded with David Bowie, and others more experimental, actually some of my personal favorites. At 75 years old, he's just released his newest album produced by Andrew Watt, Every Loser. On today's episode, Iggy shares incredible stories with Rick Rubin about his career. Their conversation was so great, we decided to split it into two consecutive episodes. Today in part one, we'll hear Iggy reminisce about recording Funhouse in Los Angeles and the first time he saw the ocean. He also talks about the tight-knit rock scene in Detroit and how it was in some ways led by a local madman, writer, activist, and music manager named John Sinclair. And stay put at the end of this episode to hear a song off of Iggy's newest album. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Rick Rubin in conversation with Iggy Pop. Rick recorded his side in Parts Unknown, and Iggy recorded his side of the conversation at Shangri-La in Malibu. Hey. What's happening, man? How you feeling? Hey, I'm all right. Yeah, it's good to see you. Good air up here. Yeah. Really, really nice. Yeah, you're sitting in my usual spot. That's where I usually hang out. Oh, that's great. It's a good spot. I used to drive over here a lot when uh, when L.A. would get, you know, too close, you know? Understood. When did you live in L.A.? 
Well, I lived here, uh, around here, uh, 70, 73, 74, and then a little bit into 75, so about two and a half years. Mm-hmm. But I would come out a lot uh, in the 80s. You sort of had to come here to do things, yeah. you know, a lot in 90s, too. And when, so, you, when you left L.A., did you move to New York? When I left L.A. in the 70s, I hitched on to David Bowie's Station to Station tour and started writing with him as that tour progressed across America until we got busted in Rochester. And uh, then uh, from there went to Europe. How did you guys hook up in the first place? We hooked up originally when uh, I was staying in New York in 1971 at the loft apartment of a guy named Danny Fields, who was a key positive force for people like the Ramones, myself. Uh, he helped out Lou Reed in a lot of ways, all sorts of, all sorts of good people. Did Danny sign you to Electra? Danny was the guy who originally came to the uh, Union Ballroom at the University of Michigan to see the MC5, and we were opening. And he saw us, and he recommended, we spoke, and he recommended uh, to Jack Holtzman that, well, if you're going to sign the five, maybe you should sign this other band too. I thought they had something. Amazing. You know? So he was he was the guy. Yeah, they didn't have a functioning A and R. A lot of a lot of labels didn't at the time. Mm-hmm. So he was their publicist, but he was the kind of guy that Jack Holtzman used as uh, the uh, in-house hipster. Yeah. You know, the guy who knew what was going on and uh, what was cool. And apparently he had good taste because at that time, I can't imagine any other label signing those two bands. Well, exactly. And uh, Danny had very, very avant taste. Mm -hmm. He was a a very intelligent, well-educated guy. He'd uh, graduated Princeton University and uh, he was a kind of a low-key, you know, kind of guy would wear a little suede or leather jacket, but uh, not too flashy, and uh, slacks. And that was, about as, that was about as far towards straightness as he would go. Yeah. But uh, he, didn't, he wasn't flamboyant about anything, and uh, he sort of fit right in with the, uh, the backroom crowd at Max's with Andy Warhol and would hold court with... Uh, a group of sort of young eccentrics in New York. They were like uh, people who should have been the Kennedys, and they weren't. (laughs) They were like intelligent, nice-looking American kids gone hard left suddenly. And uh, if you became a Warhol star and were willing to work in his movies, you got a little paper a little sort of piece of paper similar to the draft cards at the time with Andy Warhol's signature that you could present at Max's Kansas City and get all you could eat, but you had to pay for your own drinks. Wow. So, yeah, that's how he paid his people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a little oval room at the back of a steak and beer joint on Union Square. 
and uh, you would have uh, the first time I went in there was because Danny was calling me on his phone. I was staying in his loft, and I was watching Mr. Smith Goes to Washington on his TV, and I was just almost in tears at the sincerity of his willingness to take on the corruption. And, you know, I was relating it to the music industry. I was plenty angry at the time. And he had to call me three times. He said, there's some people down here. They really want to meet you. It's David Bowie and his group. And uh, you could do yourself a favor, damn it. So I finally, yeah, I finally said, all right, all right. I you know, okay, we'll meet these strange people. And I went down there about one in the morning, and Lou, Lou Reed was down there. David, Tony DeFries, his manager, who was, had a manager get-up, big cigar, a fur coat, the big fro, you know. But also down there was um, Ultraviolet mm-hmm. and uh, Taylor Mead, mm-hmm. who was just a strange uh, very flamboyant street character there was a wonderful guy named donald lyons in that group who was a professor of uh, greek he could teach you yeah actual he, he spoke greek and latin and uh, but was just a cool guy yeah right it's like someone it was like my dad without being judgmental you know yeah you know just somebody like you know wow an educated man who wears a suit and everything but it's just like easygoing you know and uh gosh who else was down there baby jane holzer was there that night and uh they all just sit around and chitter chatter a lot Had, had you had been aware of bowie's music at this point in time or not really I was only aware that he had, he'd mentioned the Stooges, or maybe it was me in an, a little piece in the uh, Melody Maker magazine mm-hmm. as one of his favorite groups or favorite songs. And I can't remember, it was right around that time that I heard what he was, what he was doing, which was the album, I think it was Hunky Dory. Mm-hmm. And it had Life on Mars. Uh-huh. And uh, I remember listening to it, and I, I, I thought, well, this is not my cup of tea, uh-huh. but, whoa, yeah. this guy can do things musically. Holy cow. You know, they're incredible, the grasp of melody and uh, not only chord changes, but he would actually do harmonic shifts and uh, and transpositions. And I thought, well, oh, dear, dear, dear me. And he had... He had the range in his voice to carry what they call lift a chorus. Mm-hmm. You know, the old you know, lift the chorus, sing the song, the refrain. So that was out, I think, at the time. And I was listening to that. And that was my, that was my first impression. You know, I thought, well, it's not, any, it's not at all related to, like, you know, tough bro rock music. But uh, there are skills. This person has actual skills. Who were the tough bro rock music that spoke to you in those days? At the time, Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels. Incredible. For instance, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's still alive, right? Uh, yes, he is. And he's still doing, uh, he's, they still do the same songs and gigs. And uh, Johnny B., who is amazing, you know, one of the finest drummers in America, still will go out, still play with him. But Johnny also did, like, uh, 
Stevie Nicks mm-hmm. tours. You know, he gets he gets good work. Who else? Music like that. I always liked the MC5 quite a bit. There were some things I liked more than others, like like with anybody else. Yeah. You know, I liked I liked very much the Stones albums where they did mostly covers. Mm-hmm. That was what I was listening to at first. I liked very, very, very much the first album by the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. Mm-hmm. With Born in Chicago and uh, Melodon Easy. They were doing a lot of Little Walter and stuff. And they had a mixed band. Mm-hmm. Some of the guys were were born into uh, the white side and some of the guys born into the to the black tradition and uh, Sam Lay was on drums who was uh, later was nice to me and then he played on uh, Highway 61 Revisited the Dylan album that's Sam did you like Hendrix? Hendrix incredibly much Hendrix I saw him because we were in the Midwest at the time mm-hmm. in the old days when the groups would come over, you had to get from the East Coast to the West or vice versa, and Ann Arbor and Detroit was one of the stops. So I saw Jimi Hendrix in Ann Arbor, Michigan, in a converted bowling alley on a stage about 12 inches high, and I was right in front of that stage, and he had a single stack, and Mitch Mitchell on drums, and uh, Noel, on bass and he wore the suit with the eyes wow. and he played the hell out of it and the and the stage was right in front of the men's room <laughs> and i remember before the break seeing mitch mitchell had to go in the men's room and come back you know just little odd things that you remember like yeah. that but right right there and in detroit michigan at the Grandy Ballroom, where the Stooges played a lot, and especially with the MC5. We opened for The Who. We opened for Cream. We opened for Sly and the Family Stone. You could see uh, Van Morrison. You know, everybody played there, and again, very close quarters. God, it must have held a 1,000 people. Mm -hmm. One window, very hot. (laughs) And uh, and a low proscenium, so you were really right there. You could really see it, really hear it for what it was. Led Zeppelin also. Led Zeppelin didn't want to use. There were these two tiny dressing rooms next to the stage. They didn't want to use that, so they used the manager's office and walked through the crowd to get on stage. But in those days, when Jimmy Page hit his guitar, the sound you heard was coming out of his amp. It was not mic'd through APA. In those days, at an average ballroom, there were, PA would be used only for the vocals, and there'd usually be one mic placed under the snare drum on the battering side of the of the bass drum to kind of collect everything, and that was about it. You know, so it was a, it was a more organic sound, and it was great if you were in the right spot, you know. Would you move position to get it to sound as good as you could, like yes. self mix? Yes. Yeah. Oh hell yeah, yeah. That's it. You bet I did. Yeah, and you push, <laughs> yeah, push my way absolutely, because you would have to do that. You know, if you were on the guitar side, you'd hear more of that, and you wouldn't hear the bass so much. Amazing. Yeah, when the Who played there, Townsend had the Leslie speaker. You know, the large wooden box 
with the JBL 12 inch speaker and then the uh, fan going around him. Do that to your guitar. And he had that up on stage. And in those days, it was very hard. Uh, Sly had a B3. So they had to bring the B3. <laughs> there was no B3 in the psychedelic ballroom. They had somebody had to get that B3 in there and get it out. It was a big deal. That's a huge piece of stuff, you know. So uh, things were different. I always preferred those sounds. It's a different world now, and, uh, and a great sound engineer can do a lot of stuff to manipulate what's coming out of the amps live but uh the problem is it can become samey to my ears in other words to my ears still a, a drum kit sounds like a drum kit it's very very exciting it's a boom when you hit the whack or a ding 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 whatever it is and a bass sounds like a bass etc etc and uh I usually prefer minimum interference, but it's it's different now. It's better to use some smaller amps, and, you know, I get that. But something is lost with size. Yeah, it's hard to say what's better, though, you know? It's just, no, uh, I wouldn't say better. Yeah, it's I'd just, just say, you know, yeah, it's just different. I just recently recorded an album with Neil Young in that room, and he had oh you did that i heard the first one it's good yeah yeah we did that there and yeah it was all live and all of the amps were in the room Mm -hmm. and they were playing blisteringly loud and yeah yeah we we mic'd it but on every mic you can hear every instrument you know because it's just a barrage (laughs) of sound in the space that's i like that Yeah, I like that a lot. That's I, I did a couple albums that way, especially the second one with the Stooges called Funhouse, and you know that's my favorite of the Stooges. That's what I like the best too. Uh, we had little we had little baffles in the room, you know the the mini baffle, like mm-hmm. about as big as that screen you're on right now, but nothing nothing too much to separate. The the engineer on that was young. Englishman named Byron Ross Myring, and I thought I'd never seen such a dashing young Englishman. You know, he, 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 if he didn't wear an ascot, he should have. <laughs> and uh, he, he looked like ready for yachting, you know. And apparently, it was his second album, and the first one he'd done over here was Barbara Streisand. Wow. And he went right, yeah, right from that to us. Wow. And he didn't bat an eye. There was a producer hired to do it named Don Gallucci who'd played the organ on the Kingsman on Louis Louis and Don was worried about well we they they tried separating us the first day and and we were we wanted to cry it didn't work so Byron said don't worry we'll set this up and it'll fight it it was fine he wasn't bothered where was it recorded at that killer studio the it's the Electra Studios that's right there on La Cienega Boulevard, two doors from the down the hill from Santa Monica, on the east side of the street. It was a, it, it's still a studio, I think, but it Is was it? the Electra. Yes, I believe so. Wow. Uh, Japanese architect. It was designed, you know, 
spirit of Noguchi, very minimal architecture with a nice little bonsai garden and uh, just a nice place. One recording room, you know, mid-size. It's all you needed, really. It was done right there. We stayed at the Tropicana. Yeah. And we would all walk to the corner (laughs) together with the guitars and the drumsticks and everything each day and wait at the light by the liquor store there, like La Cienega Lanes, and then cross and walk down the hill about 40 steps to the to the studio. And we each each day we would do one song over and over and over and until we thought we that was the cake that where everything went right. That's how we did it. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with more from Rick Rubin and Iggy Pop. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. We're back with more from Rick Rubin and Iggy Pop, who are talking about the making of the Stooges' 1970 album, Funhouse. How were those songs written? Most of that album I wrote in my bedroom in Michigan for them to play, for the band to play. I understood the strengths of the Ashton Brothers. They had a special timing, and especially the drummer. The drummer was Elvis Redux. It was Elvis Presley in like every town probably had an Elvis, and he was our Elvis. He was a good-looking, large kid, and you just looked at him, and you knew this guy had something. And uh, he had been a teenager. He dropped out of school 
and I was a local drummer, and he kept bugging me to teach him to play drums. So finally, when I wanted to start a group, I did. <laughs> and he was very good, very good. And, and Ron had these beautiful, a lot of guitar players that are good, have these beautiful hands. They have the fingers. He had lovely fingers. And he was playing bass at the time. And he's sort of in a, uh, a walking style. And uh, it was a very good bassist. And uh, at one point, I tried to do guitar, and I didn't have the talent. I said, Ron, you're the guitarist. No, I'm going to front. And that's how we sort of got the group together. It was the three of us, and then their friend, Dave, came in later to play bass. And, and he did a really good job uh, with very simple skills. He was, was stayed out of the way of what else was going on and held it down well. So uh, basically, I would write up something and then go down into our uh, rehearsal room in the farmhouse and pull teeth to get everybody together for a rehearsal. It's, that's band life in those days. And we'd rehearse it up and then we'd go out on the weekend and play the new song in our sets until we had a whole repertoire. And uh, the big number that Ron really aced which i think is a, my favorite number on the thing is tvi Me too and that was my his favorite. yeah yeah that's the best one because he can actually play a guitar i couldn't but ron had a very slow event horizon in yeah. his life he would play like on the first record the, he had the one big one mm -hmm. i want to be your dog riff wow what a riff mm -hmm. you know and for this one he had I just kept knocking on his door in the band house until he said, all right, all right, I'll write a song with you. And he started playing TVI the way it sounds about three minutes into the song, where it's really, he's going very furious. And I thought about it, I said, okay, that's great, but look, if it's going to develop, work as a song, play it like, start it out like Hooker, like John Lee Hooker, start it out single string with a droning string and that's he 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 liked hooker too so we started that way then i gave him the variation where instead of da 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 where it's just da 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 that suffices as a chorus you know for for the way we played something just a little a little wrinkle yeah you know and then uh developed the part where it it kind of melds into the uh, the just boom, 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 the drone. When did the lyrics come? There in Michigan in the farmhouse. It wasn't as hard as the first album. I remember that. They just kind of came. Down on the street was originally down on the beach. And yeah, uh, I've always liked beach culture. Yeah, and I would singing about down on the beach and the where the stars shine and how the the open feeling at night. And then I thought, well, look, I'm in this rock culture now. Uh, maybe something more people can relate to. And uh, at some point, we took a trip to New York. And I was pretty high one night, and I was hanging out on 8th Street when it was very active between, uh, like, University Place and 6th. And 
Everybody was down on the street, and there were so many young faces milling around, and everybody was, seemed interesting. So I took it from there, you know, and it was sort of it was sort of meant to be also a little bit about aesthetics. I was just fascinated by everything in the big city, you know, whether it was a it might be an attractive girl or it might be just a really interesting guy, but faces. Yeah. It started from faces. You know, so that one was, that was like that. TVI, I remember that came from, we did a gig at a junior high school in uh, Ann Arbor, Forsyth Junior High. And uh, we were playing, we weren't playing that number, we didn't have it yet. But there was one of the students at the junior high, she was laying on her back on in the what they call the multi-purpose room <laughs> where you play you know it's a gymnasium it's a lunchroom it's a dance hall and she's just laying there sort of taking it in on her back with her arms folded behind her and i thought she's just taking this like like watching tv mm. and i thought about that and then i always liked the cbs logo yeah at the time, the I, yes. the big I. So I thought, TV I. Well, that's interesting, yeah. you know. So that was that was where that came from. So cool. Yeah. I always loved yeah. the song and never had any idea what it meant. Yeah. So it's it's cool. And who? It takes on its, it's own. Pretty simple. Just, she's checking you out. But it, you it still takes on its own mythical. You know, I've been hearing the song my pretty much my whole life. So it it takes yeah. on a mythical meaning beyond. But knowing that it actually is rooted in reality is really interesting. <laughs> I tried to keep it away from the strict, you know, I didn't go into the carnal details or implications. I, I thought it was more fun to be just, I just like that TVI. Yeah, it's you great. Know? Yeah, just the sound of that. You know, it's funny, I, I think about it a lot lately where uh, Orwell in 1984 had this idea that the televisions in England would all have an eye that could spy on you. And now, of course, you know, that could they be do. done through your phone. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking did. at one right now. I'm looking right. at the screen. Yeah, okay, right. The camera's exactly. looking at me, looking at you. That's yeah, how we're communicating yeah, yeah. right now. <laughs> yep, yep. When's the first time you ever uh, saw the ocean? Here, um, it was when we came to Mike Funhouse. And... Uh, we all went out, we stayed in the Tropicana, so all you had to do was go straight out Santa Monica Boulevard, which at the time was a real boulevard with a grassy median in the middle, and you'd see horses sometimes wow. there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we just drove out, and we went to the beach, me and the sax player, Steve McKay, maybe, I think, one of the roadies, and uh, we went to the beach right by the Santa Monica Pier, and I saw it, and... Uh, the moon was up, even though it was light. And I remember I was ups not upset, but I was kind of bummed because I felt that the moonwalk had ruined the moon. You know, I, I liked the moon the way it was. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't like the idea, oh, God, now there's some guy up there, you know, yeah. playing golf. And, uh, yeah, I remembered that. So it was 1970. That's pretty great. That's a great take. I've, I've never heard that take about the moon, that the man going to the moon ruined it. That's yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. In 1970, and the other big impression on me that I used it in a lyric later on Raw Power was I had never felt 
the ocean breeze on a good day, it has a pitter-patter to it. It's not like a light wind that blows constantly. It hits your face and it hits your body like, you know, it has this really on-again, off-again rhythm to it. And, uh, man, did I like that, you know? So I used that in... uh, and give me danger on the raw power of it. It kissed me like the ocean breeze. Yeah. I lo- loved the ocean breeze. It made a big impression. Now, so I was 23, you know. Some people are raised right by the ocean, but once I saw it, I've always gone way out of my way to be near the ocean as much as I possibly can. It's interesting that Down on the Street started as Down on the Beach, and it sounds yeah. like at the time you wrote it, you hadn't yet seen the ocean. Well, the beach at that time was, uh, we have uh, many, many, many lakes in the Midwest. So the particular beach I was talking about was a place called Silver Lake, oh. and it was a little lake where the kids, we would all go on the weekends or in the summer. Uh, you know, it's like... Uh, bigger than a pond <laughs> you know maybe a maybe a mile across yeah. maybe not you yeah. know like that and you had this uh, little kind of a dirt slope that was that was a beach and a, and a changing area you know yeah. like a county park yeah that was that was the beach and uh i had been when i did my first full professional gig i was a drummer straight out of high school and I was playing in my high school cover band all summer in a beach area of Michigan on uh, Lake Michigan called Harbor Springs, and it had sand dunes and everything. So we, we had that culture, but it's not the same as the ocean. Yeah. How would you describe your relationship to music? It gives me my connection to emotion. And, and I'm, I feel I, I, if I don't have that connection emotion I don't feel for some reason interested or that whatever I might be doing is worth doing it it doesn't mean I have to go around having emotion every second of the day that that doesn't work that way but it started out as uh, I'm sure you've felt this you know maybe you're I was on the school bus listening to be my baby by the Ronettes and you're you have this wave of, I don't know what that is. You know, it's like this uh, adolescent yearning, that sort of thing. But on the other hand, you also listen to Louie Louie by the Kingsman. And, you know, you want to uh, have a wild time a little bit or something. You get excited, you know, the different things. And, and I've always been susceptible to it right up through uh, when I started listening to things. My parents brought a classical, uh, uh, one of these 10 great classics, mm-hmm. you know, one of these albums, and they had some Ravel on it. They had Bolero, the Ravel's Bolero, and I loved it. I was only 12, 13 when I heard that and uh, liked it maybe a little more than the records Elvis was making at the time because he wasn't doing his greatest stuff you know it was more like uh return to sender or something he he sounded great with the music i liked it but it wasn't you know it wasn't the greatest although return to sender was funny because i always thought he was singing return to cinder 
And I thought, my God, he's singing about regeneration. <laughs> of course, yeah. And I didn't, yeah. You know, I was, I don't know, you, you hear funny things when, uh, when nobody tells you what's going on, you know. But that's pretty much it. It was that. And then at some point, I wanted to do things. And uh, if I could sing like Dion Warwick, I would have tried to find Burt Bacharach and, yeah. and done music like that. Yeah. which is so wonderful, you know, but I didn't have that. And uh, I remembered listening to Gloria by them. And I thought, hmm, I could do that mm-hmm. sort of thing, you know. So starting from what can you do? And then later uh, for Funhouse, it was the James Brown was a huge influence. And the bands he had at that time, the drums and bass, the syncopations, yeah. I thought, well, I could be influenced. I could do something that had my own particular flavor of that. You know, it didn't have to sound like that. I'm not going to try to do that. But uh, but that was the idea behind it. It's interesting. It's, I, I read something recently where it, it described the Stooges as the first rock band that didn't have any of the influence of soul or R&B and I thought, wow, these people don't really listen to music. Just in terms of the groove of it, it's yes, so exactly. incredibly groovy. And there's there's so much music that's not, you know, that's just cold. But that's not. <laughs> I had Scotty, I was taught him Stax Volts beats. Yeah. You know, that sort of thing. And uh, a lot of the music I don't like is when the artist goes into what I would call aping. You know, aping something that's good. Well, we could do it almost like that, mm-hmm. but maybe for a different crowd that, you know, yeah. I, I don't want to hear that. But when you try to take the qualities, the qualities, and do that in your own way, that's sort of the stuff I like more. I have a funny question about the relationship between music and time and i'll tell you why i'm asking about it is and i i'm wondering in my case if it has to do with when i was born and when what i listened to when i think of the beatles and i think of the beatles was a very long time ago and then i think of the stooges and i think of the stooges as much more modern i don't think of it from the beatles era yet the stooges existed when the beatles were the beatles the Stooges came into some degree of popularity only very recently. And I think that has a lot to do with it because it's the social cues that you cannot ignore that come from the outside that type what something is. The Beatles right off, bang, that stuff. Once they got out of Hamburg and got the suits and started singing about love, bang, that was popular. And so I think because of that, they have to carry a certain baggage. The Stooges don't have that problem. It was so obscure and so small, and yeah. we'd go places sometimes. If we if we went out of the Detroit area, maybe went across to Ohio, we'd have twenty people. You know that was it. You know, so little by little, the group became more popular later, and I think for that reason, and also our listeners are younger, although there are a lot of old people who like it, you know. Mm-hmm. 
But I think that might have something to do with it, although I've, I've been really happy that the group gets included more and more in discussion and portrayal of what's called classic rock yeah. because it is classic rock in a way, yeah. you know, in a way. But, it, you know, so I, I would say it, it might have something to do with that. And the the music also was cut clean like a Corvette, like Ferrari, like Noguchi, like Jean Prouvé, like clean cut lines done very, very simply, maybe helps it age pretty well. The music hits hard and it kind of, it has a power, but it's not this, it's not grabber music. Mm-hmm. It's not music that reaches right out and takes your, you know, shaking you, listen to this, you know, not those, not those first two. Yeah. The, and part of, a lot of that was the personality of the brothers. They were just drawn back individuals, both of them, and um, did not put themselves forward very easily, did not say a lot very easily, just had something, a slow groove. It might have been because uh, they lost their father at a ketone, and I I think it was traumatic for them. They were uh, in their young teens. And uh, I remember Scott saying toward the end of his life, he said, well, we just didn't have the guidance. There was a comic named uh, Jonathan Ross who has a popular show in the UK, and we played his show, and then we sat for a talk. And he sort of asked the brothers, you know, he said, now, if you hadn't been in the Stooges, what would you have done with your life? And immediately didn't miss a beat jet pilot race car driver <laughs> like <laughs> yeah bag right so funny i was i wanted to cheer i said boy yeah and honestly the the father had been a, a marine fighter pilot yeah and i think he had trouble adjusting to life after that experience after the war was over he was a macho man you know and and he was he was teaching one to be a jet pilot and the other one to be a race car driver Amazing. so yeah 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 but there was an abrupt stop to that and all of a sudden you know i think it it uh, affected them in a in a deep way would you say uh you were very different than the other members of the band, or would you say you were very different from everybody? <laughs> well, I'd say the latter. I didn't realize it at the time. I thought it was just different from them. Yeah. But of all the people with whom I wanted to communicate, they were the most difficult to communicate with. It was, it was a real challenge, and... Uh, uh, I did manage, and we we did some great stuff together. But yeah, that's a good point. I I never thought about it that way, and I read an interview years ago with one of our one of our roadies. He's now a a, a very mature man and works at Chrysler, and uh, he just said, "Well, the rest of the band, they were just you know they're." They're just regular guys from, from down river, but, you know, Iggy's not regular. <laughs> so that was his point of view. Yeah. I listened to him, and I thought, oh, 
Maybe so. Maybe I'm a little different. That's possible. Well, I think I think the difference is, and it's not any, uh, it's not a good or bad. It just seems like mm. you have a more, let's call it an artistic temperament, and good and bad comes along with that. And they had a more workmanlike jet pilot, <laughs> you know, mentality. Yes. And and those are just two very different ways. Even though they had they had a lot of artistic talent. Yes. You know, but that's different. They could do stuff really well if you gave them the right setting. Wow. Yeah, they could execute. But yes. you, you, you had a different vision than they had. And that's. Yes, I did. And again, it's yeah, not I better did. or worse. It's just there are all kinds of people with different strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. And if they were like you, the Stooges wouldn't be like the Stooges. So the, the yeah. fact that it is what it is, is it was perfect. Well, you know, years later, when there, Ron did some interviews when we weren't together before we reunited and then even after where he said, yeah, you know, we could have been the American Stones. And what I would say to that was, no, the American Stones are Aerosmith. And that's because the way things are done in America, if you're going to be the American Stones, you need a singer who can sing rings around Mick Jagger. You need a guitar player who can play more cleanly and incisively than Keith Richards. You need a band that can do a range of music that's palatable to a large group in a nation of 300 million. That's, that's the nature of, our, of the USA. And, you know, that wasn't what we were ever going to be good at. But, but that, that's how they felt, you know. Or what Ron felt about it, not Scott. Scott was a little more savvy than them, but uh, mm-hmm. but that's what I would say. Yeah, there was. I had a particular once. Once I got into it with them, and you know, you look, you start out where you are. So there we were in Detroit. Our contemporaries were Bob Seger, Ted Nugent. Detroit Wheels were more earlier than all of us. But still, there was an influence. There was uh, the MC5, of course, Scott Richard Case, various local bands. And then later when uh, they were exposed to our scene, uh, Alice Cooper moved from Phoenix into Detroit. So those that was your competition and also your, your colleagues. So we kind of worked from that and tried to find our own niche it worked for us, and I was thinking about it 24-7, yeah. <laughs> as you do when you're young. But were you friends with all those guys? Yeah, friendly, absolutely. Nice. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Bob Seeger was the guy who really, boy, that he he put the nail in, in uh, any chance of my straight life when he came to uh, my high school, and he had a band called the Decibels at mm. the time. They were what people called a greaser band. And they greased their hair back, wear matching suits, and they played mostly in instrumentals beautifully. And I heard them in my high school auditorium and the way it sounded coming out of those amps. And I was like, yo, just did something to me, electrified me. You know, and they're playing like ventures, that sort of music. Yeah. And uh, wow. You know, and then later we'd play the same places he did, and I'd listen to his singles as he was trying to develop a style, and I and I knew him, and we got along nice. And yeah, of course, 
I got along great with uh, Alice Cooper and all the guys, Glenn Buxton and all that whole bunch. And the MC5 were like, we could go over to their house and eat a peanut butter sandwich. Their girlfriends would sew my leather pants. You know, it was very, very collegial like that. Ted was a little different, but at one point, I remember talking to him about, he was curious about maybe having me do vocals for him. And it, it, it wasn't going to be the right fit for me, but it was a really nice scene where you felt that you could get things done and go out and play and enjoy life and enjoy your music within the Southern Michigan area. There was also an interesting guy named Terry Knight, and he was a DJ on CKLW in Detroit, and he had a band called Terry Knight and the Pack, and he would imitate the uh, look and the sound of the top English bands at the time. And it was a crack band, and uh, that band was later what became Grand Funk Railroad. Wow. And Terry, when he did a make, he said, okay, I'm not the singer anymore. I'm the manager. <laughs> and I'm gonna, yeah, and that was, that was them. And they were a crack three-piece. Boy, wicked, wicked. What a great, they were great players. Really, really great, Amazing. you know. And Question Mark, wow. who was a huge, wow. yeah, huge influence. Amazing. When I, when I was, yeah, I was still a drummer, and I went to play Saginaw, where he's from. Saginaw, his people picked the cherries. A lot of people from uh, Mexican descent came up and were picking cherries there in Saginaw Valley. And uh, these girls came to our gig, and they said, well, that was pretty good, but have you heard of question mark and I was like no wow and then I heard him it just boy it blew me out you know he so cool. that particular number but he also had other cool numbers he had down by the railroad tracks and he, a lot of good numbers we're gonna pause for another quick break and then we'll be back with the rest of Rick Rubin's conversation with Iggy Pop every week at Broken Record we meet with legends of the industry to uncover the meaning behind the music the strategy and history that separate the good from the truly great. That's what Mark Chaikin does, but for the U.S. stock market. Mark is a creative legend in his own right. He worked on Wall Street for 50 years, invented three new indices for the NASDAQ, and has predicted some of the biggest market shifts of the past decade, including the recent mania in AI stocks. Now Mark says we're seeing a similar shakeup in the financial markets. He's calling this a new dawn for the U.S. stock market and predicts dozens of specific stocks will soar in the next 90 days. He put everything you need to know in a new presentation specifically designed for people off Wall Street. You can watch Mark's presentation for free at NewStockTrend.com right now. Again, the link to watch is NewStockTrend.com. That's NewStockTrend.com. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. 
This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. We're back with Rick Rubin and Iggy Pop. Why do you think there was so much good music going on in Detroit at that time? Like everyone you mentioned, you talk about your group of contemporaries, yeah. these are the local artists at the time, and every one of them, whether you like them all or not, doesn't matter, yeah. every one of them is great. There was a positive energy because it was the heyday of the Detroit muscle car culture. They were making beautiful cars that were exciting and fun and looked great and sounded great and were great to drive and in a wide range there was a lot of work for everybody there was some urbanism but also a lot of open space and uh, there was a very very large migration from the mid-south tennessee and kentucky to the detroit area during the second world war to bolster the auto plants for the war effort. And it never really ended. It just kept on right up through the 60s. I, I grew up, my trailer camp where I grew up was on uh, the side of that road. It was a two-lane blacktop US-23, also known as the Hillbilly Highway. And it went from Tennessee right up to Detroit. And there was a natural hands-on power with that. There were similar things going on out here with the Oki culture transported to uh, Southern California, especially Orange County, you know? You, so you had people who you didn't have to have, you didn't really have to graduate high school to get a good job somewhere and have a good time. And then your kids might start playing guitar in the garage and, and would have a, an optimism that would allow them to go do things. That's what I would say. And that, that existed there in Michigan. In, in Chicago or New York, those were bigger cities. So the groups had to be more realistic about everything. You had to be very professional. And uh, it was harder to get everything together for your rehearsal. It's that sort of thing. But uh, not quite so in the Midwest. Yeah. yeah. But you can't list... 10 great artists that came out of New York at that time, musical artists, it, it doesn't exist. No, no, you can't because it was too, just too tight. Everything was too tight. And until, until the synthetic music came along, disco worked for New York people because it had a more Latin and Afro-American energy to it. 
uh, but it was harder. I mean, the Young Rascals, that's, that was a very great bar band, you know, killer yeah. bar band. Uh, that, and then they'd get professional writers and work with them and make a great record, but it, it, it's different. The big city's great in another way, yeah. I think. It worked for doo-wop, like doo-wop from yeah, New York was incredible. Yeah, of course, because you could just get together on the street corner, and then there was all the music that came out of the playgrounds later of the Bronx and, you know, Brooklyn and all that, because you could steal some electricity, and suddenly there were boom boxes, and uh, things change. Did you know uh, John Sinclair? I knew John Sinclair. Tell me about. Really tell me about. Tell me everything about him. <laughs> okay, John Sinclair was a guy. He learned his music really in the joint. He'd done a. He'd done something. I don't know what he did. He spent a year or two in the joint, and he there he learned about all the great Atlantic records and all the great jazz records, and he was a kind of a, kind of a Henry the Eighth character uh he had uh, he was a very large man like a large knock-kneed man with a large girth knock knees and wild hairdo and was very interested in promoting free love free everything free food free music we don't need songs we don't need money we don't need this and this and that and he he started several communes in the Detroit area. One was called Translove Energies. Another was the, uh, God, I can't remember what he called the MC5. He had a musical commune too, which centered around the MC5. And then finally culminated in something called the White Panther Party. And uh, they were going to be, you know, he, he also had a side where he liked to be tough. And so they there were MC5 roadies were all big and tough. And uh, I remember Fred Smith told the story once that early in their uh, gestation, to prove your place in the band and make sure everybody was a worthy band member, they all had to fight each other. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, to make sure, okay, there are no wimps in this band, right? So, so they were they were really interesting on that like that and john would egg them on in a certain direction and he was also doing poetry and he liked to get up with the band about halfway through their live sets when he and play alto sax and he didn't play any <laughs> melodies or anything. yeah he'd get up and yeah. he liked to show but his big the big thing that blew my mind about john was that at one point, they no longer could stay in Detroit because the police were coming around trying to bust them for marijuana at that time, trying to bust them for LSD parties. So they moved to Ann Arbor, which is a little college town, and this is 1969, and they rented an old fraternity house type of house, right? One of these big old Victorian houses that are on every college campus with like 12 bedrooms run down and somebody wants to rent it. And they lived there and they called it the White Panther headquarters and they printed a postcard, you know, a regular cardboard postcard like people used at the time to send notes in the mail. And one side of the postcard was purple with a white springing panther. And on the 
reverse side, it said, White Panther Party, our program, rock and roll, dope, <laughs> fucking in the streets. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that... Boy, you know, holy shit. I mean, when they, we had a police department in our, you know, that attracted their attention right away, you know. So he would push the envelope. He was a provocateur, John, and, and had a sense of humor about everything and liked to, liked to smoke dope and, uh, and make love with his. Uh, he had a wonderful partner, a girl from Germany who was a very dogmatically artistic person named Lenny Sinclair. And as, as huge as he was, she was tiny and slim. But Lenny was a good photographer and also took Super 8 footage and really good photos of everything happening at the time. And, and her, her stuff is the real best document of Michigan Rock at that time. And she's still, she's still living there in Detroit. John, at one point, I think he was in Amsterdam, for quite some time, and I'm not sure where he is now. He was doing poetry. He's just a, a very, uh, he's one of the most righteous people I've ever met without making a big deal about it, but he's kind of sh shocked me at certain times. Yeah. And there, there was a one time when the MC5 were going to go to Chicago to play during the big showdown at the... Uh, Convention. I think those were was it the Republican or Democratic convention in Chicago that resulted in the police beatings, and they they went to play in the park, and he wanted the Stooges to come and do it, and I said, no, I'm not. That's not us. That's not me. I'm not doing that. And he said, well, you're with us or you're not, you know, sort of thing. And I said, well, I'm not going to say I'm not, but I'm not going. Yeah. So so there was a little difference there. But um, he's a good man, but there seems to be certain unbending things there. And uh, he was a force in Michigan Rock. There was him, and then on the other hand, there was just a uh, an eccentric school teacher named Russ Gibb, who just liked kids and liked music. And he was the one who put together the psychedelic ballroom and did things like, you know, the kind of guy mortgages his house to run the club, that kind of thing, and made a lot of things happen for people. And then there was a third force who's still a big manager to this day of Michigan people. And that was a guy named Punch Andrews who had a, yeah, Punch has Kid Rock for a while, maybe still does, I don't know. And he did, uh, he still does Bob yeah. Seeger, I believe. Yeah. And Punch just was a very sensible guy who had a string of clubs called the hideouts in nicer neighborhoods where the kids could had money, you know, and uh, yeah. those were nice places to play. We played there, and uh, we were we were proud to be able to get up to where you could play one of Punch's clubs. Was John Sinclair older than you guys or same age? Yeah, a little older. Like two years, three years? I'm not sure. I would say maybe more. I'm just guessing mm -hmm. maybe five, six years. Okay. Maybe just that edge, that next, you know, when you're when yeah. you're very young, or I would say in music in general, five years is yeah. a generation. So maybe like felt like that. Okay. Felt like five. And did he I'm not sure. Did he put the M C five together or were they already a group when No, he met them? they were at, listen, they were that's interesting. 
they were good cover band. They were a really effing good cover band, and I saw them at the Ann Arbor Armory covering Stones and Pretty Things and uh, Motown songs, and they were just already very, very good. And, and Wayne Kramer tells me, I don't remember, I have no recollection of this, but apparently they asked me to, to drum for them at one point, and I didn't. I said, no, I'm going to try to do my own thing, but I don't remember that. But yeah, no, they were good covering. They were writing, and uh, it was a much different thing. But they were already tight and good in the, a similar way to the members in Grand Funk Railroad, Mark Farner and those guys. Great drummer in Grand Funk. It's very, very good. Also were a good cover-type band originally. And then how did they switch into being the MC5 we know? I think that had a lot to do with John. Wow. I think it was John in coming in in the way, I don't know that you hear stories anyway about Andrew Oldham, who I met years ago, sort of telling the Rolling Stones, you need to write songs, <laughs> you know, and listen, the Beatles are the good guys. You're going to be the bad guys, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, you know, so I, I think... Uh, there was a little bit of that, you know, and then the the songwriting, their point of departure of writing a song, it was a little more dogmatic, and it had to generally be something that was acceptable to the whole group, you know. That's tough to pull off in songwriting, yeah. you know. They they did it a couple times. The kick out the jams is you know, and that's there's a dogma to that. Okay, this is what I'm doing. This is what it means. Let me do it. Get out of the way and everything. And the guys, you know, the guys are all having fun. That sort of thing, you know, you know, in the the dressing room getting hazy and et cetera, et cetera. That was their particular way, and then they carried it. Eventually, they had some songs like uh, "Human Being Lawnmower." was sort of a social critique type of a rock song, you know. So they, they went more over there, I would say. American Ruse was one of their songs, you know. Hey, 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 take a look around, you know. I finally caught on to the American Ruse, you know. You want to have fun, they won't let you, that sort of thing. We're going to pause on Rick's conversation with Iggy right here and pick back up next week where Iggy will talk about the artist who inspired his frontman style, working with David Bowie, and the first time he ever bled on stage. But before we jump to the credits, let's hear a song from Iggy's new album, Every Loser. Here's the song, Strung Out Johnny. Come on, man. Fix me up. 
was Strung Out Johnny from Iggy Pop's new album, Every Loser. You can hear the rest of the tracks from his new album and other songs we love on a playlist at brokenrecordpodcast.com. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast where you can find all of our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Ben Tolliday, Eric Sandler, Jennifer Sanchez, our editor is Sophie Crane. Our executive producer is Mia LaBelle. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show and others from Pushkin, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And if you like our show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Every week at Broken Record, we meet with legends of the industry to uncover the meaning behind the music, the strategy and history that separate the good from the truly great. That's what Mark Chaikin does, but for the U.S. stock market. Mark is a creative legend in his own right. He worked on Wall Street for 50 years, invented three new indices for the NASDAQ, and has predicted some of the biggest market shifts of the past decade, including the recent mania in AI stocks. Now, Mark says, we're seeing a similar shakeup in the financial markets. 
He's calling this a new dawn for the U.S. stock market and predicts dozens of specific stocks will soar in the next 90 days. He put everything you need to know in a new presentation specifically designed for people off Wall Street. You can watch Mark's presentation for free at newstocktrend.com right now. Again, the link to watch is newstocktrend.com. That's newstocktrend.com. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today.